We are in week number three of our Storyteller series. Uh, this is uh, Jesus, the master communicator, uh, telling us, teaching us through stories. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the sower and the seed and the soil. Which kind of soil are you? One of the four. Check it out in Matthew 13. Last week, we talked about who is my neighbor and what, do I, what are my obligations? What, what does love require of me to do to my neighbor? What does that mean to love your neighbor as yourself? So that was last week in Luke chapter 10. Now we jump ahead eight chapters to Luke 18, and we're going to talk about the story of the persistent widow. The story of the persistent widow. So I want to jump to that slide that has uh, Beverly Goldman on it. There she is. Does anybody recognize who that woman is in the middle? Anybody watch a sitcom on Wednesday night on ABC? I sound like such a commercial. Um, on Wednesday night at ABC, 8 o'clock, it is a comedy about a family called the Goldbergs. They're growing up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the 1980s. The mom is a classic character in this sitcom. Her name is Beverly Goldberg, and she is a mama bear. Uh, it, she uh, strikes terror in the William Penn Academy High School where her kids go to school. Why does she strike terror? Because she is such a homer for her kids. They know that she's going to fight for whatever her kids need, and they know she's not going to take no for an answer. Look what, look what she says to the administrator there. I don't want to build her up too much, but talking about her daughter, who's, who's to, her, uh, to her right, your left, the young woman there, says, I don't want to build her up too much, but she's literally the best student that's ever been or ever will be. <laughs> you, everybody needs a mother to fight for you like that. So she's there to fight for her kids. She won't take no for an answer. And when she is told no, her reply is usually something like, well, then I'll just be back in your office every single day until you change your mind. And that after, over time, the principal just says, you know what? I know where this is going. You can have what you want. <laughs> So that relates a little bit to our story today, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 18. We have some scriptures that are going to be up uh, on the screen also that you can follow along. Uh, this is Jesus' story about the persistent widow and the unfair judge. Now, this is one of those stories that's unusual. I always like Jesus' stories because they have these unforgettable characters. So you have a widow who has a desperate need. You have a judge who has no character at all, the kind of judge that nobody would want to go up before if he's deciding your case and he's deciding your future. And I don't know if you've ever been there. I remember getting a bad speeding ticket one time, and I, I remember sitting there in the court, in the traffic court, saying, this guy's really kind of got my future in his hands. And so you feel like he's, he's going to say something to you and your whole future is going to be affected by what he says. So you can imagine her desperation. Jesus was just talking about his return. They said, you know, show us where the kingdom of God is. That's what the religious leaders were asking Jesus. And he says, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is among you. And he said, in fact, when the Son of Man returns, it's going to be as public as the lightning flashing across the sky from the east and the west. And as it was in the days of Noah, so is going to be the return of the Son of Man. As it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, it'll be, re it'll be that way in the and when the Son of Man returns. In other words, people just went about eating and drinking and marrying and doing their business, and then the return of Christ comes, and it was too late for them. So Jesus is saying, get ready. Get ready, because the Son of Man is going to return in an hour that you do not know. 
So there's Luke 17, right before we get to this passage. And now in Luke 18, I think what Jesus is saying is, until that day comes, you're going to need to pray. You're going to need to keep that relationship with your Heavenly Father close, and you're going to need to remain faithful in those prayers because it may get worse before it gets better, and you're going to need to rely on God even more and more. So look what it says here. Uh, one day, Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. Now, I, I had two reactions when I read this. The first one was, thanks for giving away the punchline, Jesus, right before he tells the story. He doesn't do that in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We get to, help, we get to figure it out. So it's really good for a pastor to come up and say, Let, let's unpack that and explain what I mean by that. But here's Jesus. There it is, folks. He's going to tell a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. So I'm just going to close and pray. We'll just sit down because he's already, he's already given us the punchline. No, he's going to tell us a story, and he's going to give us an illustration of that. So that's, on the one hand, I feel that way. And on the other hand, he has these great, unforgettable characters. Let's keep on praying. Let's never give up. Let's keep working for justice and see God bring his kingdom into our world. So here's the point. Uh, they always ought to pray and not lose heart. Jesus is in answering the question on how we can do, how can we endure to the end? Because you remember when Jesus is talking about his return and he says, he who endures to the end, that person will be saved. He who endures to the end. And so the next follow-up question is, okay, well, help me out here, Jesus. How can I endure to the end? And Jesus, is, his answer is one word answer over and over again is pray, 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 pray. Pray and do not give up. Do not lose heart. That they should always pray and never give up. So let me talk for a moment about what persistent prayer is not, right? Persistent prayer is not these two things. The number one thing persistent prayer is not is persistent prayer does not mean endless repetition, I had friends in high school, and they went to St. Juliana's Catholic Church in Fullerton, and they came out all the time, and they, they came out of confession on Saturday, and I'd be talking to them on Monday, and they, they, they always talked about going out and having a wild time Saturday night, and they always felt like they had their get-out-of-jail-free card because they went to confession at the Saturday night mass right before they went out, which I always thought was a strange way to practice religion. But anyway, that's what they did, and uh, I said, so what do you have to do? You know, you go in and you confess your sins. There's some priest that's on the other side of the window, and bless me, Father, for I have sinned, and you've probably seen enough movies to know how that works, even if you're not Catholic or raised Catholic. So I've, I, I've seen that, and they say, yeah, and you confess your sins, and then he says you're, you're forgiven, but here's what you have to do in penance, right? Here's, here's what you need to do. And they usually say something like you need to say 10 Our Fathers and say 10 Hail Marys, right? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody have a Catholic background, right? So, so then I said, so 10 Our Fathers, 10 Hail Marys. I knew the Our Father. I had no idea what the Hail Mary was. And then I find out later, I'm reading the Gospel of Luke, and it's like, it's right here in Luke 1. Mary's praying this prayer. So it's basically the prayer that Mary's praying, Hail Mary, full of grace, right? So, but there, I said, so what do you do? I mean, do you go, do you go sit down and, and fold your hands and, and, and quietly, you know, get yourself ready to pray to God? He says, no, 
I, I, I said, I start walking out of, the, uh, out of the church after confession. I go, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I said, are, are you thinking about what you're praying? And he says, no, I'm thinking about the words, about how to get through the words as fast as I can. To pray the 10 prayers, our fathers, as fast as they can. To pray, that, that is what Jesus is saying. This is not what being persistent in prayer is. It's not about an endless repetition. That's saying 10 our fathers in a row is not going to get God's attention any more than a heartfelt single prayer, our Father who art in heaven, nor is the Hail Mary. So it's not the endless repetition in prayer. It's not having a super long prayer meeting. In other words, if the longer I pray, the, the amount of words that I say in total, that determines whether God is going to hear me and answer my prayer. So in other words, the more words, the, the better grade, the better answer to prayer. I had a college professor one time, and this is at a Christian college. And he was getting near retirement, so I gave him a little, a little uh, grace on this. But, but he said that when he received his term papers, you know, the, the finals, you know, you get that final paper and it says, okay, it's got to be eight to ten pages. You got to have footnotes and all this. And some people would write less. Some people would write more. And I said, and somebody asked him, he said, so when you're grading these papers, Dr. Smith, how do you do it? And he says, oh, basically, I take the pile of, of graded papers and I toss them down the stairs. And the ones that stay near the top, they're the C's. The ones that are sort of in the middle, they're the B's. And the heavier ones that make it all the way to the bottom, they're the A's. And he didn't break his, his countenance at all. And we're looking at him like, seriously? All the work I put in? <laughs> Now, so my point is that the endless uh, prayer repetition does not mean that, that your prayer is going to get answered any more than a short prayer. Peter got an answer to prayer immediately from Jesus. Do you remember Peter was sinking on the lake? You know, the, the, the storm was happening and Jesus comes walking on the water. Peter says, hey, Lord, if it's you, call me to come out, to the, out of the boat. Come on out. Peter starts walking and then he looks. He, remember, the whole point of that is he looks away from Jesus. Instead of trusting in Jesus, he's looking away at the wind and the waves. Oh, you know, and the next thing you know, he starts sinking and you remember how long Peter's prayer was? How many Our Fathers do you think he got said before he was at the bottom of the lake, right? No, he said, Lord, save me or Lord, help me. And boom, Jesus helped him right there. So three words is about as long as your prayer really needs to be in, in, in truth, depending on how desperate you are. I've, I've had times where I didn't even know what to pray at all. I, I was so desperate. I just said, God, help, just help. And I think that prayer probably got through as much as any eloquent prayer that you could read in any prayer journal. So anyway, look at what James says. When you pray, so he says, pers uh, you go about your day. Here's, here's what, I, I told you what persistent prayer does not mean, right? It's not endless repetition. It's not the length of your prayer. Uh, persistent prayer could mean something like this. Like in the morning, you get up and say, God, you know this need that I have. I, I really need you to help me here. Please show me the way or give me an answer to this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. And then maybe an hour later, as you're at, the, at your driving or at the office and you think about that prayer request again, you pray it again. And then as you're 
uh, later in the morning and early in the afternoon and later in the afternoon and right before dinner and right before you go to bed. There's how I think the, uh, Jesus is, that's how, I, that's how I best understand him when he says you need to be persistent in prayer, that you should always be praying and not give up, especially until you get an answer to that prayer. Look what James says, uh, Jesus' half-brother. He writes in his letter talking about prayer and he says, if any of you lacks wisdom from God, let him pray, right? So you lack wisdom from God, let him pray and, and let him ask of God. And he says, but when you ask God, be sure that your faith in, is in God alone. Do not waver, right? For a person with divided loyalty. In other words, when you're praying to God, God, I, I need your help. I need your direction. I need an answer to this prayer. Please help, right? When you pray that, he says, do not waver. Don't go back and forth. Did God hear me? Did God not hear me? Am I going to get an answer to this prayer? Maybe I won't get an answer to this prayer. It all has to do with your faith. Well, like, like who are you praying to and who is the character of the one you're praying to? Do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. So God wants you to focus on him as the object to whom you're praying and trust that his character is such that he's going to hear you and he's going to answer you. Don't get divided in your loyalty between God and the world. So now let's go, let's go back to the parable that Jesus is talking, the story in Luke chapter 18. He's talking about this nagging widow and an unjust, corrupt judge. There was a judge in a certain city, Jesus said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. How would you like to have a judge like that? No, thank you. And neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy or with my adversary or with whoever the person that is in, a, in, a, in some kind of a legal case my guess is trying to take something away from her or trying to keep something that belonged to her and with her adversary. And here's the judge. The judge, what's his character? He has no piety at all. He has no respect for God, didn't fear God at all, didn't um, uh, fear uh, God who said, if you're going to be a judge, you're going to have a stricter judgment and you need to judge in righteousness. You need to judge fairly. You need to judge without partiality. You know, just because somebody gives you a bribe doesn't mean you automatically rule in their favor. And so this judge was absolutely the wrong kind of judge any of us would hope for if you're really going to get justice. And then here's the widow. The widow, the widow resents, represents somebody who's poor and who's oppressed, right? So this desperate widow, this desperate widow in Jesus' day and culture Widows and orphans, they were the, the most vulnerable in that society. Both the law and the prophets in the Old Testament, as you read the Hebrew Scriptures, the law and the prophets repeatedly say over and over that the poor, the widow, the oppressed, the alien, those such people in the society, they should be cared for. They should not be exploited by those who could take advantage of them. That's one of the the, the, the rules for us, maybe who have resources who are considered strong in our society, is don't take advantage of the weak just because you can. This widow had little hope of gaining justice, and now she's before this corrupt judge. And so she used the only weapon that she had. You know, here's this widow pleading repeatedly. And, and remember the words. She's persistent. 
She's doing this repeatedly. She's not having a one-time case saying, please give me justice. And then she goes away and said, well, I'm leaving it in God's hand. She came back to him over and over and over again. With nothing to lose, she made herself an irritant <laughs> to this judge. She wouldn't let go, and she wouldn't stop talking about her cause before the judge. And so my guess is that this justice, what, what this widow was looking for, probably had something to do with a property dispute. Jesus, in his day in Mark chapter 12, right before Jesus was going to the cross. So this was in the last week of Jesus' life. He's teaching in Jerusalem. Jesus makes this observation about the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. And he says this, Beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces. Oh, how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at the banquets. Yet, and here's what they do. So Jesus is like, don't tell me you love God if you don't love your neighbor. You remember that? That was the whole theme of last week. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. I think Jesus was talking to the religious leaders of the day and saying, hey, you can't have a vertical relationship with God, thinking you're okay with God because you keep his law and all his commandments. But you, if you ignore the horizontal law of loving your neighbors yourself, you're cheating widows the vulnerable, the weak in the society, just because you can, you're cheating them out of their property and then you pretend to be pious. It's like, it's, it's like it, people that learn to be Christians seven days a week is really what I'm talking about. I mean, in this particular case, how would I apply this? I would say, you know, you can't come to church on Sunday, pray these pious prayers, give money in the offering, take communion, greet one another warmly and how are you, brother? And how are you, sister? Good to see you this morning. God bless you. You know, you can't go through all those motions and then go back to business on Monday and turn it into dog eat dog, get whatever you can out of other people, you know, take from them before they take from you. That's not practicing Christianity in every aspect of your life. Sometimes for cultures, uh, the, the, the last thing to get sanctified in that culture are, are people's business practices. So that's really an interesting uh, phenomenon. It certainly was in Jesus' day, and he pointed it out. Widows had a difficult place in Palestine. Widows in general. In the world, even today, widows have a hard time. Because normally, the wife of a deceased husband, she had no legal right to inherit her husband's estate. When her husband died, she couldn't take for granted being able to still live in the house on his land because if if her deceased husband, if, if they had no children together, then the state, the estate or property where she was living, it just went back to her husband's male relatives on her father's side, maybe one of his brothers or uh, their father, his, his father's brothers, and then, or the nearest family kinsman. In other words, she, she didn't have any rights at all, and she was very vulnerable, and that's why Jesus was probably using this illustration. It was in the early years of the church, and this is how the Christian faith, this is, this is what it means to say, okay, followers of Jesus, how were they different from the regular practicing Judaism of their day? In Acts chapter 6, in the early church, the very first problem that happened in the church 
was that they were a certain group of widows. Some of them spoke Hebrew. They were Jewish background believers. Some of the widows spoke Greek. They were Greek background believers. They were both Jewish, but some had come in as God-fearing Jews. Some of them were born Jewish sons and daughters of Abraham. But what they noticed was the Jewish-speaking widows in the early church, they were getting a better cut of the benevolence than were the Greek-speaking widows. And the Greek-speaking widows spoke up and they said, hey, this isn't fair. We're getting the short end of the stick here. We're supposed to get help and we're not getting the help. And they brought that reality. They brought the problem to the apostles and the apostles said, okay, we're going to solve it. And they figured out a way to solve it to make an equitable distribution to where nobody was, was getting exploited just because they weren't the right kind of people or had the right kind of background. So that, the early church, the, the beauty of that was they, they took an inequity and an injustice and they solved it. And they solved it right then and there. So what did the judge do? Of course, he hears this woman coming to him repeatedly, give me justice against my adversary. The judge ignored her for a while. But everybody wears down over time. <laughs> the, the judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God. I don't care about people. But this woman, this woman is driving me crazy. Husbands, do not comment on that. This woman is driving me crazy. I am going to see that she gets justice because she's wearing me out with her constant requests. She's wearing me out with her constant requests. Now, what I, when I'm reading this, and maybe you, you read it this week or sometime, when you read this, do you not think at this moment, Jesus, you know that God is our heavenly father, that God is our judge. One of the, one of the, the greatest descriptions about God is that he's a fair and impartial judge, right? And, and Jesus, you're talking about this judge in the story, and he's not just. He's not fair. He's not giving her a fair shake. What does this have to do with you? Because you are a good judge. I don't get the point of the story, right? So she's wearing me out with her constant requests, right? So this, this idea, he, she keeps bothering me. The, the Greek word is like to cause, to, to, to happen, to, to cause pain, to cause discomfort. The widow just won't quit. And she keeps making him feel uncomfortable. In other words, as long as he doesn't give her justice and she comes back to him again and again, even though he doesn't care about justice or God or righteousness, it, he, he keeps getting pricked in his conscience. He keeps getting say, you're not doing the right thing over and over and over again. And finally, he just gets wore out, right? He says, she's wearing me out. Literally, it says she's giving a black eye to him. She's striking them. She's striking him in the face with the reality of the injustice that he won't give her a fair shake. So even though, you know, it's speaking in hyperbole or exaggeration, she wasn't threatening him with bodily harm, but she's saying she's constantly beating down on him until he will give her what she's asking for. Now, here's the keys, because God is not like this judge in the story. But here's the idea, that if even a godless judge... Here's what I think Jesus is saying. Even if a godless judge can respond to constant pressure about what is just and fair, then how much more will our great God, who is a, a fair judge, an impartial judge, how much more will our God respond to us when we pray to him? It's this idea of the lesser to the greater. Even an unjust judge will give a fair ruling once in a while. 
Won't our God, who is just and fair, give us a great ruling when we come to Him in prayer and He will answer us? But the point is about God, He'll answer us in His timing. And notice I said that God will answer our prayers in His timing, not our timing. Look what Paul tells Timothy in the early church about caring for widows, right? Paul says, take care of any widow who has no one else to care for her, right? So if this widow is really destitute, if she's really economically needy, the church is to take care of such women like that. And they were needy in the church because of, like we just described, they're so vulnerable. Uh, they could be exploited so easily. Take care of a widow like that. But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility then, in other words, her family members, or immediate family members, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. Now, a true widow, a woman who is truly alone in this world, she's placed her hope in God. She prays night and day asking God for his help. And Jesus is saying that's the kind of prayer that God is going to answer. In his way, in his time, God is going to see that she gets help and that she gets justice. Finally, Jesus is backing up, he's finishing out the story in this parable, and he says, then the Lord said, now that's the way that Luke describes Jesus in the gospel many times, they'll just say the Lord. <laughs> Jesus is fast forward. You may think of him as a human being and as a good teacher and somebody that can do miracles, but I'm just going to fast forward and say the one that you think is just a human being, he's actually Lord of all. He's the second person of the Trinity, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a way to fast forward it. And Luke says, the Lord said, Learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? And of course, the rhetorical answer is no, God's not going to keep putting them off. Uh, that's why Jesus says in the parable to begin with, he says he's telling them the story that they should always pray, that they should not lose heart. God is not unjust. God will see that you get justice. Pastor John Piper says this, God's heart, talking about God, God's heart is inclined to help those who cry out to him for help. Now, I want to share just something personal with you guys. Let's be honest, uh, I've been a Christian almost 40 years now, and I can tell you from the reality of my prayer life and my, my prayer history, and I think it's true if you, if you review your times of prayer and things when you've had a need in your life or you've had a difficulty or a crisis and you've prayed to God for help, the reality is that we've all prayed some prayers to God that we didn't feel like we got any answers. Or if we did get an answer, it wasn't the answer that we were hoping for. We've all prayed some prayers to God whose answer was not a yes. You may not get the answer that you want from God in this moment. You may not get an answer that you pray to God right away. Lisa and I were talking one time and, she's, and, and we were talking about our kids and sometimes our kids pray about things and they get an answer right away and they're in their 20s and early 30s. And, and here we are in our, you know, older than 40 and, and, uh, and we're praying and sometimes it's like, why is it that they seem to get an answer right away? Why do they seem to get an immediate answer to their prayer and we seem to have to wait longer and longer? Have you noticed that as you go along in your Christian life? Sometimes God waits longer and longer. So somehow, somehow I really think 
in God's timing, what he's doing in the delay is he's developing that relationship in you. He's developing that character in you and me. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to have peace. He says, in this world, you'll have trouble, but in me, you will have peace, right? So he says, how do I develop that character in you? Sometimes you don't get an immediate answer because if you get the immediate answer, you just go on in life and you don't really learn to trust God in a deeper way, right? St. Augustine of, of Hippo in North Africa, this is a great teacher in the early 5th century. I'm sure Luke can tell you all about him in that class next door. St. Augustine, he wrote about prayer and waiting on God for an answer to prayer. This is what Augustine says. If God seems slow in responding, he is preparing a greater gift. He will not deny us. God withholds what you are not yet ready for. He wants you to have a lively desire for his greater gifts, all of which is to say, pray always and do not lose heart. So he says the same thing at the end, but he's saying, and when it seems like God, there's a delay, just know that God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. He's just developing something in your character. Jesus says it this way at the end, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will God keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. So in your bulletins, you have, a, you have an outline. I want you to fill in these blanks in your bulletins. The first thing to remember about God, what can you know for sure about God when you pray? Number one, and this is so basic, I feel like you don't even have to say it, but I think we should. When you're praying, remember God's character. Know how much God loves you. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. And that is who we are. First John, the man who knew Jesus best, one of Jesus' best friends, he's writing these words. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called children of God. If you're a child of God by faith, you have to know deep in your heart that God loves you. And that means that he's on your side, that he is for you, not against you. Know that when you pray, especially when you don't get an immediate answer. Number two, believe that God will hear your cries for help. It's not that he's ignoring you. It's not that he's not listening to you. It's not that your prayers are bouncing off the roof and coming right back to you. It's that God has something in store that you just don't understand yet. And then number three, trust. Trust that one day, and, and you hope it's gonna be sooner than later. Otherwise, we have to develop patience, and that's a real tough one for me. I don't know about for you, developing patience. You know, you pray, God, give me patience, and I want it now. And God's saying, I don't think it works that way. You're not going to get patience now. You're going to get patience when you have to wait. It's called delayed gratification. It actually leads to maturity, and that's a tough one to learn, tough lesson to learn. Trust that one day God will give a just decision in the end. We just sang a worship song. In fact, John, you did a great job on that. You, I, I threw a curveball. I say, hey, John, on Monday or Tuesday, I want to sing this song in the worship service. You probably may have heard of it, but you, I doubt you sung it before. Nope, but he's willing to learn it. He's willing to teach it to the worship team, and they sang it, and they did a great job. That song was called While I Wait. While I wait, I will worship. Lord, I will worship your name. comes from Lincoln Brewster's God of the Impossible CD. I looked it up on YouTube just to see if I could listen to the lyrics and capture them all, and there were four million downloads on this one song. 
So you think this song is resonating with people, people who are praying to God and not necessarily getting an immediate answer to their prayers. And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, pray and do not lose heart. Pray and do not give up. Stay persistent in your prayers, just like that widow was in front of the unjust judge. Here's what Lincoln said about writing it, because every deep song like this has a story. Right? And Lincoln says, here's the background of the story of this song. In the midst of a long and painful season, I wrote this song called While I Wait. It was to remind me that God is always with us, even in the waiting, even in the longing, even in the hoping. God is walking with us through the pain and even our questions and doubts. My wife and I are in a season while, where we are Waiting. This was in June of 2018 when he gave this interview for this article, probably during the release of the album. My wife and I are in a season where we are waiting, believing God for a miracle, and it's not the first time we've been in this place. Throughout my life, there have been many seasons of waiting. Look what these lyrics say. He says, deep within my heart, I know you've won. I know you've overcome. And even in the dark, when I'm undone, I still believe it. I walk by faith and not by sight. Sometimes miracles take time. So while I wait, I will worship. Lord, I'll worship your name. While I wait, I will trust you. Lord, I'll trust you all the same. Lincoln continues, the more I read the Bible, the more I realize that I'm in good company. God's word is filled with countless stories of people who are waiting on God. Abraham waited on God 25 years to make him the father of nations. His wife, Sarah, waited on God for years to bless her with her very first child when she's in her 90s. Noah waited on God to stop the rain. David waited on God to give him the throne, even though he was anointed king of Israel. Ruth waited on God for her Boaz. The list goes on and on. Waiting is simply a part of life. And I'll say this, waiting is a part of the Christian life, though it's rarely my favorite part. I'm too impatient, and despite seeing God's mercy and guidance throughout my life, I sometimes end up wondering if God will really keep his promises. It's during those times I have to remind myself what I know to be true, that God is faithful, that God keeps his promises, and that God has a purpose for me while I'm in the waiting. There's much meaning to be found in the pain of waiting. Often we don't know what the purpose is. Sometimes we won't know what the purpose is until that promise is fulfilled. Then there are times when we never discover this side of heaven, what the ultimate purpose of that wait was. However, I do know that that wait Waiting for God to answer that prayer, that wait is never wasted. While we're waiting, God is molding us, he's shaping us, he's transforming us. And if you're waiting for God for something, then I ask you to join me in looking for him in the middle of our wait. Amen? I'm going to ask the choir to uh, gather and come on up and get ready for singing their final song. And, and I want us to bow our heads for a word of prayer together. First of all, Lord, as we start this prayer, 
thank you for the privilege that we do have. You say eternal life is a relationship with you, and that relationship, when you're an invisible God to us living here on this earth, prayer is our lifeline to heaven. Prayer is our connection with you, and you say that when we pray to you, we can find mercy and help in our time of need because, God, you are full of grace and compassion to us. So, Lord, help us to see there's times, Lord, and every one of our lives when we feel like we're just waiting and waiting for an answer from you. God, help us to see that when we're in this time of waiting that you are still active and you are still at work and you are still fulfilling your purposes, even if in the moment we can't see it. Help us to walk by faith, even if we can't walk by sight. Lord, help us to trust in your timing that because you are good, because you are holy, because you are faithful, your timing is going to be better than our timing. Help us to trust you for your timing in the answer to that prayer. But Lord, help us to be persistent in keeping on praying what you're calling us to pray for until we do get that answer. Lord, we love you. You are worthy of our trust. You are full of mercy and grace. And unlike that unjust judge, we have complete freedom and opportunity and trust to come before you and know that you're going to give us an answer whenever you decide the timing is right. God, help us to be faithful in the meantime. Help us to not lose heart in the middle of that, that waiting time of prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.